It's episode 50 of The Build. 50th episode. And for the first time since I started this bit, I regret to inform you I do not have a player to name who wore the number 50 for the Montreal Canadiens. That, in and of itself, is a bit of a story. Uh, the You know, for, for those who might be unaware... I use the um, the hockey reference sweater registry, and that registry goes from forty nine to fifty one. I I I just it, it, that's not even to say that the number fifty should be like one that that players have worn. It's kind of an ugly number on the back of a jersey. But to the fact that like no Montreal Canadian has ever worn it is is kind of astounding. So it got me thinking. There are there are only three non-retired numbers that have never been worn by Montreal Canadiens that still could be worn by Montreal Canadiens. The number fifty, the number eighty-seven, and I'm pretty sure they're just saving that for when Crosby comes. And the number ninety-eight. In the one hundred and fourteen-year history of this team, no one has worn those three numbers. So that's somewhat special. Um, like I said, 50 is a fun milestone number. I'm treating this episode of the show as a fun milestone. Um, but it looks pretty weird on the back of a hockey jersey. Corey Crawford made it look good in Chicago. Um, Antoine Vermette, he wore it too, won a cup. So there's two hometown guys who have won it. That's kind of close. Okay, Vermette is closer to Quebec City, but that's close enough. The bit lives. So... I wasn't just going to talk about the number 50 for an hour here. Um, the offseason is still particularly slow. Um, you know, Washington just re-signed uh, Tom Wilson to a contract that is way too long and way too much money. But that's, you know, not, not what this show is going to be about. Um, and I don't think I can do more than... Five minutes on the Jesse Ullinen contract, and that's if I really stretch for time. So, I said this is, I'm treating this as a milestone, so let's just go all the way with that. We'll treat it as sort of a a special, if you will. Um, as you might know, um, every episode that I record, I make a very long uh, outline so that I do not come onto the show and ramble in front of you. I try my very best. I still ramble, but this helps quite a bit. Um, so I take detailed notes for every episode I record, so I thought it might be interesting to look back at the very beginning of this show and see how you know my thinking around how this team is being built has evolved over the, over the first 50 episodes, um, how the fan base at large has thought about the current front office and where things might be headed in the future. I'm not going to recap all 50 episodes, so don't worry. I wouldn't listen to that. I wouldn't subject you guys to that. Uh, think of this as like a clip show, but I'm bad at editing, so I'll just be making new clips of the old clips. It makes sense if you don't think about it. All right, let's uh, start. So the first the first episode of the show, I think, is kind of the... It's the only one that didn't focus on the new era of the Canadians. It really just it set the stage as to what the Canadians were going to have to fix under the new front office. Um, the, the first big question 
was whether or not Mark Bergevin left the Canadians in better shape than he found them. My answer has not changed in 50 episodes. That's still a no. And we're still dealing with the ramifications of that last summer and the summers before that. Um, right now, the contracts he left behind are practically immovable. Um, Mike Hoffman only has a year left on his deal, and unless he comes into the, the season firing on all cylinders, no one's going to take even half of that contract. Um, Christian Dvorak has been a really, really tough go in Montreal, um, and Bergevin paid a first and a second to get him, which continues to have you know, ramifications because the that that trade sent a 2024 second rounder to Arizona in exchange for Dvorak along with that first. And if the Canadians wanted to sign an offer sheet this summer, they would they they are unable to do so because they do not have their own second rounder, their own second round draft pick. They could probably they could sign one that didn't involve that as compensation, but it's fair, fairly difficult to do that. Um, and also, Bergman only made that Dvorak trade to salvage one of the worst summers in recent memory. The Canadians finally had a center, depth at the center position that they did not have. Suzuki, Kotkaniemi, and uh, uh, Philip Deneau were looking like they were going to be uh, the like the best center core this team has had in a very long time. Kotkaniemi walked on an offer sheet, um, and Bergevin hardballed Phil Deneau into leaving for L.A. So that last summer was not great for Mark Bergevin. He signed some deals that he shouldn't have. Um, the Gallagher contract wasn't in that same summer. But it's still just another anchor that he leaves behind. The fact that we are still looking at this team's cap-friendly page as something in need of cleaning is a testament in itself to how poorly Bergevin handled the Canadians in his, la- in his later years with the team. Yeah, some of the guys he's drafted or signed are making an impact. Caulfield and Gooley are big-time players for this team. And there are others on the way or already here. But for someone who talked so much, so much talk about the importance of the draft and development, his drafting and developing record was bad. It was worse than bad. So my answer hasn't changed there. If, if in case anyone was wondering, like it's, we're still Montreal is still bottoming out. We're not done being awful yet. I think there's one more year of that at least. Um, yeah, sure, he got Suzuki and Caulfield here, and they're, they're excellent parts of this team's future. I won't take that away from him. But in a perfect world, those guys are, you know, on they have a, a, a roster around them who can compete. And right now, those two players do not. One thing I touched on in that first episode as well was the untouchables on the roster. And I had basically two, Suzuki and Caulfield. They're the only immovable players. In a slightly lower tier, since that has passed, I would add Gooley, I would add Slavkovsky, and I would add Doc. 
Those aren't untouchables in the sense that I'm never, ever, ever going to move them, but it would take quite a bit to 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 undo those players from being Montreal Canadiens. Um, you know, I, I think it's worth questioning as well. You know, I think in that first episode I talked about, you know, are we in the worst of it? It seemed like we were in the worst of it when I first started this show in February of 22. Um, but things are still kind of uh, dumb. <laughs> the team still isn't good. Um, it seems like, to me at least, though, that this last year might be the absolute worst and that things are going to start getting better, at least from a fan perspective. And really, this is probably wishful thinking or, or copium, if you will. I don't think the team will be as bad as they were last season because I think they'll be a slight, slightly healthier. Um. I also don't think that we'll be cheering through gritted teeth anymore, hoping for the better lottery odds. Um, maybe I'm wrong on that. Maybe, you know, once the Canadians are, are firmly out of the race, you know, we're looking into like March or, you know, February, March and April. Like we're looking at, at trying to lose as many games in order to just secure a, you know, a seventh or six, seven, eight spot in the lottery. But I'm not going into the season expecting or, you know... It, I'm not going into the season expecting the Canadians to have like number one odds of the draft lottery. There are some teams in this league that I think are worse than the Canadians. Um, the next episode was was sort of you know the uh, breaking down what I thought the team was going to look like under Kent Hughes and Jeff Gordon. Um, You know, I, I left, tried to leave everything in the past in the past and move forward with, you know what this new front office thinks. Um, Jeff Gorton made it a goal of his to modernize the Canadians, and to a certain extent, I think he's done that. Um, we've seen it in, in aspects like player nutrition. They're, they're, they're taking a, a, a much more hands-on approach to what the, the players are putting into their bodies. Um, hiring Chris Boucher to come in and head up an analytics department, which they didn't really have in the past. There have been so there there have been some steps taken to modernize this front office that's been you know made apparent to us. There's probably more behind the scenes that we're not aware of at this time. Where that modernization is lacked, at least from the perspective of of an outsider and of a hockey fan, is the hockey man of it all. And by that I mean like guys in the business hiring other guys in the business that they've worked with. Jeff Gordon and Nick Bobroff worked together in Boston and in New York. Um, even though Gorton said very clearly that Kent Hughes is not his best friend, they've known each other very well for a long time. But still one of the funniest moments of the Hugo era, for what it's worth, is Gorton saying with Kent Hughes right next to him that he's not his best friend. It's kind of funny. Um, Gorton wanted St. Louis to coach the Hartford Wolfpack after he retired. He revealed that on a podcast, um, you know, I think after last season. And now he, it's his first option to get him to coach the Canadians. Um, Ken Hughes was Vinny LeCavalier's agent, and now he's in Montreal doing some kind of hockey ops role. I really don't know what Vinny LeCavalier does with the Montreal Canadiens. That could be an entire side project of this podcast just to figure out what it is that he does. Um, Hughes has since traded for Mike Matheson and Alex Newhook, both players that he represented as an agent. And I say all of this not to admonish the Canadians as an organization or Kent Hughes and Jeff Gorton as people who work in hockey, but to point out that this is really a hockey problem. 
that is not, you know, that is hard to shake. Guys are just comfortable with the guys they know. One thing we we over-exaggerated from this era of the build and of being a Canadiens fan was the Canadiens' interest in Habs, or in Rangers players and Rangers prospects and young players. To date, they haven't acquired anyone from the Rangers. So I think it's probably safe to put that one to bed. It might happen eventually, but I don't think that it's a, it's a hyper-focus of this front office. All right, next, I, you know, the beginning of this show, the reason why it's called The Build, right, is that we really weren't sure if this was going to be a rebuild or a retool. Um, so I kind of just, you know, split the difference and called it a build, the build. Um, Pierre Lebrun said early on on a podcast that, you know, this was going to be more of a retool than a rebuild. But I think that's kind of been proven false. We're going into season three of Hughes and Gorton. Only their second full season, yes, but they got a trade deadline in during that first season. So I'm going to count it. Um, They're probably two years or so away from being, like, you know, competitive again. That's a a five-year plan. Like, that's a rebuild. It's interesting looking back and seeing what we sort of were told to expect in terms of the plan for this rebuild. I was worried about a retool when this show started because it would feel slapdash and rushed and, and you know, just trying to get a team get a team back to the playoffs for those those two home playoff dates every year. But I don't think that that's where we're at. I don't think Look, there are a lot of things you can criticize this Canadian's front office for, and I'll be the first to do so. But I do not think they are rushing things. And ultimately, we won't know until they've either won a Stanley Cup or these guys are are out of jobs in Montreal. But I don't think like you can look at the moves that they've made and say, yeah, they're definitely um, they're definitely trying to rush things. Like. They have not traded futures for assets that are that much further down the road where you consider it a, a, a win-now move. Like, they traded first-round picks for, um, you know, they traded Alex Romanoff, which, in you know, for a first-round pick that became Kirby Doc. But, I mean, Kirby Doc was just a few years removed from being a top-three pick in the NHL draft. You can sort of make that argument with New Hook that they, they flipped a couple of, you know, premium assets for a young player, but a player nonetheless who's already played NHL games. But I don't think that, like, those are, the, like, those don't don't set off the alarm in my head that, oh, man, we're going for it, right? Like, you know, I remember, you know, when I think it was the 2013-14 season when at the trade deadline the Canadians got Thomas Vanek. Like, that was a go-for-it move. They didn't have to pay that much. And, you know, Vanek was actually really good in Montreal. But like that, you know, that that's the kind of move that would worry me. Like if this team is is close to being a bubble team somehow this season, if they, you know, start trading away, away futures to get this team into the playoffs, I'd be a little concerned. There are some moves you can make at a deadline like that where it's not like, you know, you're giving them a chance, but you're not mortgaging the future to do so. Um, but I, I just don't think that at this point the Canadians have done anything to to indicate that they want to rush this. 
And the last truly big change um, of the first 50 episodes was the coaching change. Um, I tried, I wanted to get the, the podcast out and done, you know, the first couple episodes done before they did anything silly. And then they fired Dom Ducharme, like as soon as I came up with the idea. So it didn't work out that way. But, um, you know, Dom Ducharme was told he was going to stay on for the year and then was fired because the team was absolute garbage. And he really did nothing to do he did nothing to improve the situation and since then he has done nothing but complain about it um you know he he gave an interview i think it was with the athletic and he he had a line about how he would have played the young guys and lost games if management told him to do so it makes me embarrassed for him to hear that stuff like he was going to lose those games regardless because the roster was bad the issue was that he was so painfully against changing anything. If the front office told him to play the young guys, I'm fairly certain he would have tried it for a few games and gone, see, doesn't work, and then go back to the awful deployment he was used to. Like, I know I know a lot of Canadians fans out of that era of the Canadians have painted Jeff Petrie into being like this, this you know, locker room evil that needed to be purged from this roster. Jeff Petrie came to the Canadians, I think it was in 2015. And from that time on, he was a model Canadian. He was, he came in as a rental. He, he loved it here. He signed. He was a, he was a fantastic Canadian, probably, you know, in that time, one of the most underrated Canadians on the roster by, by the, the fan base at large. And that coach, Dom Ducharme, absolutely drove Jeff Petrie nuts to the point that he finally snapped and started to say that the system sucks and that that you know he would ultimately you know Petrie always brought it back to himself and said like the players have to execute we need to be better but it was very clear that he was painting a picture for the the public that behind the scenes the coach was just not he was not with it so I did not feel bad when the change needed to be made and I don't feel bad that Ducharme might have been given their word that he was going to stay on for the season. That that coaching change needed to happen, regardless of whether or not it was Marty coming in or, man, maybe even Kirk Bur- or, or, or you know Burroughs takes over for the the se- the rest of the season. Like, man, anything would have been better than what we saw, but. What we saw coming in after that wasn't just Burroughs taking over. It was, you know, one of the more surprising parts of this rebuild, honestly, was them bringing in a coach who had never coached in a professional sense. Um, And I wasn't sold immediately. I was kind of worried that this was just a, you know, one of those hometown hires. Obviously, Marty comes in with a lot of experience just as a player. Um, but he had no transferable coaching experience. He was coaching a 13-year-old team in Connecticut when he got the call. And he came in on a contract that was just to play out the rest of the season. And then, you know, the Canadians in St. Louis would talk and decide what would happen next. Although, you know, it was kind of the 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 parenthetical that always came after that was, he's going to stay. Um. What ended up happening was that the team responded to his message really well and played much looser hockey and started having fun again. 
We talk about how Cole Caulfield was the obvious winner and Marty coming in because he, he looked at Cole and said, this player is much better than what we've seen from him. We need to, we need to see more of him. But outside of Cole Caulfield, the team was having fun again. They were playing loose hockey. It, it, that, the hockey at that point didn't matter. And it doesn't matter how well they played at the end of that season because they still finished in last place. The thing I remember most about the beginning of the St. Louis era was the system versus structure argument with, with Ducharme representing the system aspect. And I, th- that's not St. Louis saying that, but in our minds, that's kind of what happened. You know, Ducharme was a system guy, and for the team he had in 2021 on that cup run, that system really worked. Um, it worked against, you know, teams like Toronto, who had a habit of just completely falling apart. And when you are a team that is really, you know, really baked into your own system, you don't have those collapses because, you you know, the, the process always ends up working itself out. They were able to do that against a team like Winnipeg, who had the same sort of deal. They were able to do that against Vegas. I, don't, I really don't know how that series went the way that it did. I, I think really them putting Flurry in net was a mistake, but neither here nor there. St. Louis, on the other hand, wants his team to play within, within a structure and understand you know, what areas of the ice they're responsible for, but wanted players to feel encouraged to make reads to read the play unfolding in front of them and make a predictive play that fit that environment. That's where I think the the you know the the partnership of Marty St. Louis and Adam Nicholas is going to be really really great. Nicholas is a guy whose main focus is teaching players how to read and react to game-like situations and not just, you know, going through the motions in practice doing these drills that don't really apply to um, you know, in-game moments on an NHL ice surface. And that's where I think players like Cole Caulfield and Nick Suzuki and potentially really soon Uri Slavkovsky and Lane Hudson, I think that's where those guys are going to thrive. Not being told exactly where to be and, and what to do, but being taught how to read the play in front of them and then just letting them use their talents to make the most of it. And that's not to say that Marty has come in and, you know, the Canadians are immediately a, a, a you know a, a contender again. It's far, that couldn't be further from the truth. Marty knows that this is going to take time to teach these guys how to play the right way again. Um, last season there was a noticeable shift in this um, in the way that the defenders played. That I think I talked about on this show and some others I was on, but I think maybe it got lost in the shuffle of you know the rest of the season. To start the year, the defense played very cautious, safe hockey. They didn't, you know, they were focused on defending the rush and they were focused on always being back to make a play in their own zone should something happen, you know, should the puck get turned over, that sort of thing. After the All-Star break, it seems like Marty really wanted them to push the issue a little bit. And, you know, give Stefan Robidot credit for that as well. He's the the coach of the defense. Um, Every defenseman seemed to want to jump up in the rush just a bit. Um, or, pu- or rush the puck themselves just a little bit more. Some more than others. Mike Matheson was already doing this and will always do this, so he doesn't count. But guys like Justin Barron and Jordan Harris and Caden Gooley when he was healthy really wanted to be a part of that offense. And it'll be interesting to see how that progression continues. 
not only for these defensemen, but for their forward, for the forwards as well. How do they interact with, okay, well, now I'm on a four on two because one of my defensemen just jumped up in the rush. Marty hasn't really had a healthy roster. And some nights it seems like he's been trying to get blood from a stone. With a little more health, I really wonder what he can make of this this forward core. And, and the defensive core, now that he's kind of, you know, opened things up for them. It'll be interesting to see in camp, you know, do we go back to them playing a little bit more cautiously just so they can get their, their feet wet again coming into the regular season? Or do we kind of try to see them have high tempo from the very beginning? It'll be really interesting to see how that plays out. So what have we learned? The whole point of this show has always been to catalog the Canadians' rebuild, figure out what makes the front office tick. And to that end, I think I've learned a great deal about these guys that I really didn't know prior to them coming to the Montreal Canadiens. For starters, this is a rebuild. It seems silly to say now, but it wasn't when the show first started. Um, they are taking this very slowly and have not, to this point, attempted a Band-Aid fix. They haven't tried to make this a quick two-year turnaround. I think they, the, the, the guys that, have, that Jeff Molson hired in Kent Hughes and Jeff Gordon have really understood the problems that plagued this team. And they're taking their time to do it right, not only for the Canadians teams that they will watch over and they will tinker with, but for the next guy. Because, I mean, look at the Canadians cat-friendly page. They're not ready to start winning. There's too much bad money on this roster that the Canadians are going to try to get rid of just as the salary cap goes up. The Band-Aid fix was never going to be something that would work. So, this is a rebuild. And Jeff Gorton and Kent Hughes firmly understand that. Next, I learned a little bit about Kent Hughes in this time. Um, I think one thing that Kent Hughes um, does really well is is he understands the market for players and he stands his ground in trade negotiations, for better or worse. Hughes is a really, really patient guy in these negotiations. This is helpful for a rebuilding team. You want to maximize the return you have on you know, assets that are not going to help your team currently. Like, I think about the Ben Chirot trade. It seemed like a foregone conclusion that the Canadians were going to end up with, um, you know, that that first-round pick. But to get a player like, like you know, uh, I believe that one was Ty Smolanik, and who knows what that is, but it's an asset. You you got another thing. Um, You know, the, the Lekkonen trade, he didn't really want to move Lekkonen, and he got the second-round pick that he wanted, but then he, he held on for Justin Barron, who looks to be an important part of this team moving forward. Not a first-pairing defenseman by any stretch of the imagination, I don't think. But someone who can play middle-pair, bottom-pair defenseman um, at an NHL level. That's important. Part of the reason we know this has to be a rebuild, or that it is a rebuild, is that Hughes is not rushing a trade just to get a guy out the door. He's going to get you to pay his price, and if you don't, we'll find someone who will. The only time that I can think of where that didn't happen is the the Dodonov uh, situation, where 
you know, I think he wanted a third round pick for Dodonov and just the market wasn't there for him. And he, he took a flyer on, on Dennis Gurionov. Didn't end up working out, but that's this, that was a pivot that, that, you know, made sense at the time. Um, it just wasn't possible to move to Donov because he just could not play, you know, uh, meaningful minutes on a team like the Canadians, despite how injured they were. Um, he knows that, you know, as a rebuilder, he can do that. He can, he can set the market for what these players cost. But can he do that when it's time to trade futures for assets to help this team win? That's that's something that I've talked about on this show that's going to be a big challenge. And I can't help but feel that we'll see more trades in the C and D tiers of that trade tier list that I've been putting together just by virtue of what that market would be. You know, it's it's much easier to control the market when you have a player that a bunch of teams are, are clamoring over. When it's when it's the opposite and you're trying to get a guy that's gonna put your team over the over the hump in the playoffs, there are other teams also trying to get that player. What else do we know? We know that this team still stinks. <laughs> I, it, it seems like it's, you know, uh, as positive and as, as encouraged as I am by how things have unfolded, it's still very young. They're good young players. There's a good coach. The team has been really injured, and the results are not there yet. And quite frankly, the team is often fairly difficult to watch. And I think that's according to the plan. I think a lot of people at the beginning of this and over the years have said that Montreal won't tolerate a rebuild, but I think they've said it for the wrong reasons. Like, yeah, the hockey sucks. Like pretending it's good doesn't make the rebuild go any faster for me though. And it never will. And that's fine. All of that can be tolerated if there's a plan in place. And right now it seems like there's a plan in place and the people in charge of executing it are not being sloppy about it. You can argue with their opinions and how they value certain aspects or certain assets, you can't argue, to this point anyway, with their execution. Um, and speaking of arguing, we know that they do not care how moves they make will be perceived. Um, just looking up the two lottery picks that they've made over the last few years, they bucked the trend on both of them and went with their guy. There are positives to that. If every draft pick was left up to a Twitter poll, we'd end up with a lot of guys your uncle would pick after complaining about like liberals or whatever. And if they really believe in their guys, that doesn't stop with those two lottery picks, right? Like if we're saying that the Canadians, if we're chastising the Canadians for uh, they, they really, really, really love Slavkovsky and they really, really love Reinbacher, that also means that they love the guys like Lane Hudson and Owen Beck and Philip Mayshar because they, they picked them too. But with all that being said, I understand it doesn't make it any easier to live with in the moment. You know, we hear a lot that you you don't judge drafts right as they happen. You have to wait to see how they play out. That's what makes drafts so irritating, honestly. It's not like, you know, I'm a big football fan as well. Players drafted into the NFL, we're seeing them play immediately, right? Like, we, we, we won't see David Reinbacher play for the Canadians, hopefully not this next year, maybe not until the year after that. It's been two years already, or a year already, for Lane Hudson, and it will be another year before we see him. But I don't think that necessarily, you know, means innocent until proven guilty with regards to, you know, well, you can't judge a draft on the night that it happens. 
Wait and see does not mean every pick is a home run until proven otherwise. It simply means we're going to wait and see how this player pans out. And if they don't, that's an indictment on that on the front office. Granted, you know, fourth round pick doesn't pan out. It's not the end of the world. But I don't, you know, I'm not I'm not going to pretend that I've loved their last I loved their last draft. I really liked the one before that, but last draft was very odd. And maybe all three of those goalies turn into NHL goalies. Are the odds against them in that fact? Yeah, a lot, actually. But we'll see how they play out. So I feel like I've not only learned a lot about like the guys tasked with making the Canadians a Stanley Cup champion, or at least the way they think about hockey, but I've also learned a lot about like my own shortcomings as just some dude who watches these games and talks about this team. Um, I've... Over the last two years or so, like I've said a lot that's on recording, that's on video that you can, you know, I have to, I have to stand by these takes. And I think I've learned a little bit about what makes those good or bad takes. Um, I've had a lot of fun doing this show. I'm looking forward to watching games again that are meaningful. Um, Doing this sort of thing for like a, you know, for, for like playoff games is going to be really exciting. I think I said it towards the beginning of the, the very beginning of the, the build, but there's something special about the phase in a team's rebuild when they've taken their first really big step forward. It's not even greatness yet or really even goodness at that point, but it's a sign that shows us that these things, these good things are coming. It's not quite here yet, but it's on the way. I don't know if we've seen that sign yet. Um, we'll see with this next season. But speaking of that sign, I figure I should answer the question that I asked back in the first episode of the show, and I want to ask myself more regularly as we move forward, and that is, are the Canadians any closer to winning a Stanley Cup than when this show first started in February of 2022? And I guess it's relative, right? Like, are they close to winning a cup at all? No, not even remotely. You know, if we place the their cup chances on like a numbered line and being a cup champion is a 10 and being the 2021-22 Canadians was at zero, they're probably at one, right? Like we're a little bit better than we were. We're a little bit closer than we were, you know, in the season that they bottomed out and they were the worst team in the league, the first team in NHL history to finish 32nd overall. So in that respect, they're closer, but they're not close. And that's fine. You know, I think that's fine for where this team is right now. You know, next August, am I saying the same thing? I I really wonder. Um, That remains to be seen. One last uh, section here that I wanted to get to. Usually I ask you guys for questions, but this time I wanted to hear from you. I asked you what your favorite parts of the rebuild have been so far. Uh, You guys delivered with some really good answers. It got me thinking a lot about, you know, what's happened over the last two years. Um, I really enjoyed reading them. Here's what we got. The fearless nation of, uh, a fearless leader of Ghoulie Nation, rather, Kay, says, maybe this is stupid and kind of sentimental, but I really enjoyed when Nick was named captain. Crowning the youngest captain in franchise history felt like a sign of progress and good things to come. And of course, being a big Nick fan, it was really great to see him. Uh, recognized. I don't think that's stupid at all. I think captains like coaches and general managers define eras of 
a franchise and especially one like the Canadians where they don't just hand the captaincy out like it's something that really really matters you know like I forget what it was there's like a there's like there was a game a few years ago where it was like the captain's game and like all the former captains of the Canadians were there and they came out and they did a photo op at center ice like that's like Nick Suzuki is is regardless of how his career plays out he gets to say he was the captain of the Montreal Canadiens. Like that's that's wild to, to, for anyone to be able to say. Um, but like I was saying, I think captains really define the era of the team. You know that that we get to see play out. You know the, the Weber era, the Pacioretty era, the Gianta era, the Koivu era. Like each, as I said, each of those, you all had different memories of what those eras were. Suzuki being named captain is definitely one of the high points of the last few years, but I'll, I will always harbor a bit of resentment for the Canadians PR team doing that in the same hour that they announced that the 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 jerseys were going to have ads on them. Not even from a, like a I hate jersey ad standpoint, but like let Nick have a moment, you know? Like could we have could we have given him the captaincy and then the next day announced the jersey ads like like, it was like they announced the jersey ads, and then 20 minutes later, they're like, oh, yeah, Nick's captain, by the way. Like, it was it was all so bizarre. But even as sour, like, as I was at that moment, it it, could, it didn't undo the happiness that I had for Nick. It was It's really great that, you know, Montreal has a captain that, you know, I think a lot of the team is really standing behind. That hasn't really happened in a while. I know teams were, you know, fans were behind Weber, but the... The, the reason Weber was here soured a lot of people. Pacioretty, for a lot of people, was not it. You know, I think Nick Suzuki is is that guy. Uh, Amelia Pond adds, Marty St. Louis hands down, even if Puck Doku uses this picture. And for those who haven't seen it, they use like the, the player could not be found silhouette for Marty for some reason. I think, and maybe Amelia could correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's if you select him for like, uh, the Calgary Flames or the 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 Rangers where he didn't play there particularly long and they might not have a photo on file. Um, but potentially that's changing because I think they're going to be powered by uh, elite prospects moving forward. So maybe that changes. But it's very funny that they have a Hall of Famer in there and his picture is like the, you know, error 404 of hockey play pictures. Um, that sentiment for Marty, as you'll see in the answers that I got from you guys, is widespread. Like, he's got to be the most popular Canadians coach of my lifetime. Um, and I'll get back to that in a second. But Amelia also had a great question that I really liked. Um, with Edmondson's departure, who do you think takes over as social director? I That seems like David Savard to me. From everything I've read and heard about that locker room, they adore David Savard. Um, I think he's playing in the parties from now on. But we'll talk about Marty a whole bunch as we go through this. Um, from Beth of Happy Hour fame, Rem Pitlick, in all seriousness, no, Marty, his excitement and vision are rubbing off on everyone, and it's great to watch it ripple through the team, but definitely also Rem Pitlick. I want to start on Rem Pitlick because I think he's such a fun player because he came in and he scored at a decent clip and he played really well, um, and then he was kind of like overextended playing really high in the Canadiens lineup when they were absolutely decimated with injuries. And now that he's come back down to earth as like a third or fourth line option, the fan base still loves him. 
Um, it's just like, he's just a cool dude. Um, you know, something that I probably put too much stock into, but cool dudes are cool. What can I say? Um, but yeah, Marty, everything that Marty touches seems to turn to gold right now. I, I wonder how long we'll be, we'll stay in that sort of honeymoon period with him, but he's, he's been fantastic. Um, Jay adds, seeing Cole Caulfield thrive and not having to listen to <laughs> to Bergevin or Ducharme press conferences anymore. Man, that's so true. Um, I always say how I really enjoy listening to Hughes and Gorton speak. Things don't feel combative like they used to. Um, you know, even in cases where it probably could have been combative. You know, I think about the press conference after Reinbacher was picked and you know, the Canadians fans hadn't reacted particularly well. I think I think that could have gone off the rails, but, you know, Hughes hit the right notes and cooled a really tense situation. And that's not to say that he wasn't... He, he kind of said that he was disappointed in Canadians fans. He didn't say that in as many words, but, you know, he said that we're trying to make Montreal a destination where players want to play and we're kind of not helping, right? To that end, I think he's right. Um... But he, you know, he could have he could have gone into that like we had seen Bergevin go into situations like that, and he didn't do that. He he calmed a really tense situation. Because think about it, like that could have really boiled over and just like we we'd still be talking about it. But it's it's something that we've all kind of just moved on from. And yes, Cole Caulfield being excited is infectious. I really hope he stays healthy and scores fifty this year because that would also mean that Nick Suzuki is probably getting a nice bump in his point totals. A lot of the, you know, the analytic folks are saying that Nick Suzuki might be a tad overrated and overpaid, but I think they forget to mention that he's playing with, with different line mates seemingly every night. Like it's impossible for him to create any kind of consistency. Um, Adam had a similar note, seeing the end of the Bergevin era and the amazing excitement around Suzuki and Caulfield. And best of all, the inspired creation of the build. Thank you, Adam. Your check is in the mail. But for real, the fans were... It's really become apparent to me how done fans were with Bergevin's shtick. Um, there are still some bootlickers out there who want to make everything about how Bergevin would have done this better and how Bergevin left this team in good shape. But I think those people are, you know, a loud minority among Canadians fans. Uh, Habs West had this to add the relief Caulfield Express once he could finally just be himself and be free and after we got rid of all those dinosaurs, which is thankfully the same for all our future prospects. Um, it's really scary to imagine a reality where, where Jeff Molson said, no, I'm not paying another coach. You have to keep Ducharme around. Like, does Cole Caulfield sign his extension? If he kept going at the pace he was at, probably not. There's not like a super great history of disgruntled American stars playing on Canadian teams. Like look at Kachuk and Gaudreau out of Calgary playing under a coach that they could not stand. Caulfield probably could have had a lot of the same gripes. But the Canadians got out ahead of that and solved that problem before it came to a head. Uh, Kevin Soon says, I think it's hiring Marty. It would be easy to find a retread but they signaled that they weren't afraid to try a different path to success. The payoff in Caulfield's growth, al growth alone has been worth it. I completely agree. Uh, as I'm seeing through all of these comments from listeners, the fan view of this rebuild seems to be centered on how coaches work with young players. Marty's, 
has certainly nailed that to this point. And last one here from Luke Bellancourt, the hiring of Adam Nicholas, his sudden hiring uh, that was accompanied by an odd amount of praise, listening to his podcast appearances and learning he's kind of brilliant, that he used concepts like neuroplasticity in a press conference, the behind the scenes video where he's constantly shouting, dude, that guy's so loud and he just loves what he does. Like those videos of him just like shouting during practice is like it's phenomenal stuff. It's always like very encouraging stuff. He's not like, you know, ripping people apart. He's just a very bombastic person. Um, this podcast and my, you know, me as a human are on record as being a big fan of the work Adam Nicholas is doing. I, I really don't think we've put enough of an emphasis on the importance of what he's doing with this team. There has not been an Adam Nicholas parallel in this organization in the past. You know, Montreal's drafting and developing has been non-existent for the last 20 years. This was the new front office recognizing that pain point and finding a, a really phenomenal person to fill that role. And with that, I think I'm going to call it an episode and cap off the first 50 episodes of The Build. We did it. Uh, I feel like looking back that after two years and some change, two and two and a half years, I should probably have more of these. But there have been dead zones of news. Um, I had that, you know, illness in the in the in like April where I just couldn't talk for a while. So that was fun. Um, but I also like I don't like feeding you guys nothing burgers of of a podcast. Like I want you guys to have something to, you know, actually listen to that that I think matters. Um, so as always, thanks for listening. And thanks to those who sent in their favorite rebuild moments. You guys are always in my, my comments when I'm asking for, for questions or for ideas. And, and I really appreciate your, uh, support. All right. Who's ready for the longest social plug ever? Because we're all on 20 platforms now. Um, you can find me on Twitter. I'm not calling it the other name at maybe it's Ian on threads at maybe underscore it's Ian and on blue sky at maybe it's ian.bsky.social. Uh, the build is also on Blue Sky. I managed to get a, a code of my own. So I I, got, I grabbed the original of the build. I don't know if that is going to take off, but at the build.bsky.social. Uh, the build is also on TikTok at the build MTA, MTL, sorry, where I'll post clips from episodes. Um, the same can be said for YouTube. Um, I'm going to upload full episodes there as well as shorts, just clips from the shows that I record. Um, setting myself up for the build to be a media empire this season, hopefully. Uh, the music you heard at the beginning of the show and are hearing now is Inside by Fred Mug. Check the link in the description to head over to his Bandcamp page for the rest of his stuff. All right, guys. Thanks for the first 50. See you in the next 50. And the 50 after that. And the 50 after that. And the 50 after that.